Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Paul Morrow. Paul is John Marr Human Rights Fellow at the Human Rights Center of the University of Dayton. His research focuses on moral, political, and legal philosophy, with an emphasis on norms, Mass Atrocity, and War. His new book has just been published with MIT Press. It's titled Unconscionable Crimes, How Norms Explain and Constrain Mass Atrocities. The moral horrors of genocide and mass atrocity lead us to wonder how such things are even possible. A common, and I should say understandable, reaction is to see events of this kind as arising from the collapse and eventual disappearance of norms as such. That is, because we find genocide and mass atrocity so difficult to comprehend, we grasp for an explanation that ascribes to these episodes the absence of comprehensibility. Against this tendency, Paul Morrow argues that moral, legal, and social norms help to explain mass atrocity and accordingly can help avoid its occurrence. In Unconscionable Crimes, Morrow lays out a subtle theory of norms as explanatory and action-guiding tools. Now, as usual, there's a lot to talk about. But also, as usual, we should begin with our guest. Hi, Paul. Hi, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? Oh, hanging in, you know, it's strange days, but, uh, you know, making the best. Um, so, you know, we usually just begin with, uh, the author saying a few things about himself. So, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So as you mentioned, I'm a moral and political philosopher. Um, not true of everyone on this program, I understand, but a former student of Bob. So it's great <laughs> to hear from you again, Bob. <laughs> it's good to be talking to you, Paul. <laughs> and uh, as you mentioned, I, I've worked in a couple different positions, uh, but I've always been a philosopher at core. I'm currently working in a human rights center where the focus is you know, really on advocacy and also on institutions and sort of explicit legal norms around human rights. So it's this past year has been a really impressive introduction to the sort of practical sphere of, you know, issues that I really understood from a philosophical perspective um, before that. Great. Um, so, and am I right to, to think also that you've done a lot of traveling <laughs> as an academic? That's right. So uh, even when I was doing my PhD, I did a visiting fellowship at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., uh, where I was, I think, I don't know if I was the first philosopher, but I was certainly the only one there amongst a bunch of historians and social scientists. And the core of this project, you know, goes back that far uh, to thinking about, you know, what are what are some of these colleagues who work in social scientific or humanistic fields? You know, they're already invoking, you know, ideas about the normative landscape during mass atrocities. You know, what can philosophy add to the conversation? And so I've been thinking about that, I guess, for almost ten years now. And I'm still I'm still thinking about it. And I I should say that people who work in this area, you know, often have some sort of biographical background to how they started thinking about it that very closely matches what you laid out about people's first assumptions about the Holocaust or the Rwandan genocide or other atrocities, which is, you know, a failure of comprehension. And then, you know, there's there's a couple of different directions you can go from there. One is towards trying to comprehend and doing research and you know reading literature, reading testimony. The other one I suppose is to sort of put it out of mind and think, well, that's just that's just not possible to to comprehend, or maybe it doesn't touch my own life. I don't have any direct sort of negative epiphany sort of story about when I first discovered the truth about the Holocaust or one of these other crimes, as as some people who work in this field do. Uh, but it is something I've been thinking about, 
I think since middle school, at least. So it's definitely been with me for a long time. Wow. Um, so why don't we pick up on that? Because um, one of the things I really found interesting and intriguing about the book um, was uh, the sort of methodological um, stance that you take and that the book sort of begins with a discussion of and then returns to, I was sort of delighted to find returns to at the end. Um, so the argument of the book relies heavily on um, testimony. And in the, we might think of testimony in the, you rely on testimony in sort of a broad sense. That, that is that you're, each of your chapters and um, throughout each of the chapters, there's reference to reportage of more or less informal kinds as well as, um, you know, references to official government documents uh, uh, and official sources. But um, you draw on personal letters and diary entries, um, reports of conversations, uh, that occur between people in more or less unofficial uh, settings. Um, now, as you indicate, th this methodology of relying on this broad sense of testimony um, departs somewhat from a, what's a more common practice, uh, which has mainly to do, or focuses mainly rather, on official documents and um, government uh, pronouncements. Uh, and these sorts of things. So can you tell us a little bit about um, this expanded um, uh, sort of th this expanded method that you're bringing to this inquiry? Yeah, that's such a great point. I, I think I should start by talking a little bit about the historiography. So the things that people outside of philosophy have been doing and how that's changed when they think about both the explanation and then models that it could help predict or prevent mass atrocities. And then okay. I can come back to how that how that fits with how philosophers tend to think about testimony versus other sources of knowledge about any kind of event or social fact. Cool. Um, so we are right now, I think it was Saturday, uh, the 75th anniversary of the Nuremberg Tribunal's beginning. So the tribunal that happened right after the end of the Second World War. Uh, the, the main one was the International Military Tribunal, where I think there were were between 22 and 25 high-level defendants who were put on trial. Um, and Robert Jackson, who was the Supreme Court justice who sort of took a leave of absence to be the chief prosecutor there, uh, in his opening statement to that tribunal, he said, uh, we're going to make sure that justice is not just done, but seen to be done to these perpetrators. And one way we're going to do that, we're not going to rely on the testimony of their foes or their victims but we're going to rely mainly on books and records that they themselves produced or commissioned or made possible in order to prove the case against them. Mm -hmm. um, there's specific examples that are quite well known uh, within the field of Holocaust studies. So uh, at the main tribunal, there was a document called the Stroop Report, which was a report on the liquidation of the Warsaw Ghetto in 1943 uh, that was you know, commissioned by this General Stroop to give to his superior Heinrich Himmler of the SS. And it talked about the process by which they liquidated that ghetto. In later successor trials, um, other documents created by the perpetrators, sort of have an official character, were the main backbone of the prosecution's case. And the reason that matters for the question you asked is a lot of the initial generation of people who are trying to give the history and also explain sort of the dynamics and some of the motivations behind the Holocaust were people who uh, cut their teeth as assistants at the Nuremberg Tribunal. So they were aware of the sort of vast trove of official documents that existed. Um, the book doesn't have it, but there's a wonderful image from the Harry Truman Library that shows the document room at Nuremberg and just these you know, masses and masses of paper that was the basis for the trial. Hmm. So for that first generation, essentially, of Holocaust historians, you know, official perpetrator-created documents were the gold standard of evidence uh, for what happened and also, as far as possible, for the sort of motivation or intentionality behind what happened. Right. But then I think two different but related things occurred. One was a set of institutional changes. So about 20, 15 years after the Nuremberg Tribunals, there's the Eichmann trial in Jerusalem, written about famously and controversially by Hannah Arendt. 
and that put more than 100 victims or targets of the Holocaust in the witness stand to talk about their individual experience. So testimony was really elevated in the courtroom, and also it was broadcast throughout the world. So a lot of people got to hear this sort of firsthand testimony, not by those in power, not by the perpetrators, but by the victims. Mm-hmm. Uh, related to that institutional change, there was the rise several decades after that of oral history archives. So now at this point, um, thousands and thousands of Holocaust survivors have given their sort of personal history, their testimony to these archives, which are now the basis for a lot of social scientific research. So the institutional side is there, and and people cared about that because they thought that the victim's story hadn't been told. But there's also a methodological point that I think is really critical. And the, the basic idea is, if we want to understand mass atrocities, you can't just rely on documents produced by the perpetrators, because those are inevitably going to have gaps. It's not the case that every perpetrator-produced document necessarily only contains what the perpetrators want posterity to know about these events. That's that's not true, or else the Nuremberg trial probably couldn't have happened at all. Mm. Uh, But it is necessary that even some facts about perpetrators, you can't get them from those documents. So you need need at least impersonal, non-official documents, like letters, like diary entries, and you need the testimony of people who were on the other side of mass atrocities. And that, that perspective has taken over not just Holocaust studies, but what is sometimes referred to as Holocaust and genocide studies, so more comparative accounts, and sometimes referred to as comparative genocide studies. Um, and I think at this point, everybody sort of recognizes the importance of testimony in this, in this particular sense uh, for, for making sense of these crimes. And... I I'm I gather just from having read the book and 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 I'll confess I mean not being familiar with a lot of the testimonial sources um that you discuss and 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 um reference um that even in cases where the testimony is coming from sort of personal uh correspondence among perpetrators um your argument at least shows that um, there are features to how they understand or how they describe in those contexts, what they're doing that are harder to sort of discern um, when looking at uh, strictly the, the official documentation. Is that right? That's exactly right. So I think one of the, one of the challenges for me writing this book and doing the research behind it was as a philosopher, I'm not really trained in, you know, directly in graduate school in sort of source criticism and contextualization. But that's what historians have to do whenever they look at any kind of source, whether it's a written source or a material artifact, an archaeological site. And you're exactly right. Both on the perpetrator side and on the target side, uh, you can't just read the bare black letter of the text and assume, well, this completely captures you know, the sincere impressions, uh, attitudes, and goals of the person involved. And, you know, I'll give an example on not the perpetrator side, but the sort of target side. I, I, I use the work of Victor Klemperer, who was a Dresden-based uh, German Jew who managed, because he was married to a non-Jewish woman and because he was a veteran of the First World War, you know, somehow he survived the entire period of the Second World War living in Dresden. And then he was sort of saved by an ironic sort of way, the firebombing of Dresden towards the end of the war. Uh, he talks in his diary about letters that he's receiving from friends who are asking him, you know, is it really as bad as we're hearing? Are you really not getting enough food and you're really restricted in this sort of way? And he has two sorts of worries. One, he says, I'm worried that these letters are being intercepted and read, and then people think I'm spreading what is true facts about the conditions of my life, but can be construed as atrocity propaganda is going to land me in trouble. And that indicates that in his correspondence, he's probably also being quite guarded about how he describes his uh, condition. He does see writing a diary at all, keeping track of these things as a risky thing that could land him in a lot of trouble. So there's a sense in which the diary is probably more candid than the letters that he's sending. Um, and And I think that that's Probably true on the perpetrator side, uh, too. Um, though some of the, the some of the sources that I cite, it seems like they're not 
being terribly on guard, but you can never take that for granted. You, you have to sort of make the argument that this is sort of a candid statement of their views. Right, right. Fabulous. So um, let's get into the um, the sort of core argument of the book. Um, so uh, the book uh, lays out a view according to which um, you say three kinds of norms, and you're not committed to the idea that these are the only three, these are the only norms that exist, but three kinds of norms can help explain mass atrocities, um, moral, legal, and social. Um, why don't we just start sort of ground floor? Um, you know, what's a norm? Yeah, great. So a norm as an English language term is sort of semantically ambiguous. It can mean a bunch of different kinds of things. Um, you can talk about the weather you know, abiding by or departing from historical norms, which you hear a lot in sort of climate change discussions. Uh, but the weather or the climate, rather, you know, is not an agent that can have a sense of being obliged to do or sort of avoid certain things. So when people use norm in that sense, they're talking about a sort of statistical regularity, right? And there can be statistical regularities about human behavior as well. So agents can also be subject to them. You also hear in some specialized discussions, so in constitutional law discussions, you sometimes hear people refer to the distinction between laws and norms. Uh, but one thing I try to argue in the book is that you know, legal norms are a certain kind of norm, and there are other kinds of norms that aren't like that. And I think that that's what's at stake in that distinction. But for the broadest definition of the concept of norms that I'm concerned with in the book, I define norms as practical prescriptions, prohibitions, or permissions that are accepted by individuals who belong to particular groups, organizations, or societies, and that are capable of guiding the actions of those individuals. Uh, so the key things there, I think, are the acceptedness of norms. I'm not talking about just sort of free-floating normative propositions or proposals. I'm talking about things that are accepted by individuals. Um, I'm hinting that there's some sort of connection between you know, group identities, the groups people belong to, and the norms that they accept. But that connection is not always straightforward. Um, and then finally, I, I want to situate the account in the sort of practical domain. So the domain of individuals, sometimes working together, sometimes not, deliberating about and then deciding on courses of action. And I think in that last respect, particularly, a lot of the discussion of norms uh, in philosophy over the last you know, 20 to 30 years has really been about the practical domain of norms. But you sometimes hear questions about epistemic norms as well in areas of philosophy that I don't work in as much. Right, right. Great. Um, so let's then, um, let me just ask you to sort of run through the taxonomy because um, given what you just said, uh, it, it, it's not surprising that um, the way you want to make the distinction between moral, legal, and social norms is by looking at sort of two different levers, right? One is the, you know, um, do we do we say that the norm holds uh, even when its popularity is waning, <laughs> 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 or, or even when it's not popularly accepted? Um, and that's one sort of way of categorizing the norms. And then uh, the other is um, whether there are more or less explicit or codified. Um, sort of processes by which um, the, the nor norms are introduced or changed or, or, or um, uh, 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 revised. Um, so can you run us through that sort of two-part sort of way, of the, the, the sort of uh, that, that those two levers for taxonomizing the, the trio? Great. So you just hit the two sort of levers very nicely. And I refer to these in the book as salient distinctions among these three kinds of norms, moral, legal, and social norms. I think they're salient or they are of significance to people who are trying to decide what to do and maybe have different kinds of norms that could be relevant to their decisions. I think they're salient to the historians and the social scientists who I'm engaging with who are you know, trying to figure out what is the best basis for explaining some piece of action. And they're also salient for questions about accountability. Uh, I don't discuss this a great deal in the book, but it, I think there are significant differences between legal norms and legal accountability and moral norms and moral accountability. And if you don't keep these things separate, it's, it's hard to capture those distinctions. Uh, so moral norms, I say, are not grounded in real or perceived social practices. 
And there are not standing procedural rules to determine the when they're created, uh, how they transform, and how they collapse. And to give an example, in my current work, uh, I'm doing a lot of stuff on you know nonviolent protest and just protest generally. And I was talking to an activist who said that they thought the current generation of sort of social justice activists, people in college now, they're not committed to um, avoidance of violence in social justice protests. Uh, and they might have been talking about sort of tactical non-commitment, but I think they were talking about sort of moral commitment. And you know, that could be a true observation. And one of the questions about it is, well, there's you know, there's no legislature that's deciding for these young people today, you know, are you committed to nonviolence or do you permit yourself to use violence protesting for justice? So it's, it's hard, it's hard to tell in the case of moral norms when there's been that sort of transformation of what people in a particular population accept. Um, legal norms are much more easy to spot. And in, in my current state in Ohio, uh, there's currently a discussion of a bill that would make it legal uh, for people who are fleeing from a riot, which is defined quite broadly to include a sort of unauthorized protest, to hit and maybe wound or maybe kill someone with their car. So if people are blocking the road. They're, they're trying to make it you know, legally permissible to do this because there's a sort of subjective threat to life. And there are lots of controversy around this law, but one of the features that's distinctive of legal norms uh, in the system that we have is uh, that it's a sort of public debate conducted through the sort of ordinary channels that exist for creating and changing norms in the law. Uh, so it's not as hard to get epistemic access to the norm or the proposed transformations in the norm in the case of legal norms. There's also the point about practice groundedness. And, and here, I'm really focused on the practices of legal actors, right? Uh, so what Law and Fuller referred to as sort of congruence as a condition for the rule of law, where legal actors are actually fulfilling their part uh, in producing, reviewing, and enforcing laws. Um, social norms go one way and the other way. So if moral norms lack practice groundedness and lack uh, standing procedural rules, legal norms have both practice groundedness and standing procedural rules. Social norms are grounded in real or perceived social practices, uh, but there are no standing procedural rules for transformations in social norms. Um, the current pandemic has made it quite evident that this is the case <laughs> because you suddenly have a lot of um, at least proposed social norms around the kinds of distance that people should keep from each other, whether they should wear masks, et cetera. Um, and what you're seeing in, my, in, in, in various countries, I think, um, is that the hesitance to use law to uh, actually legitimate and enforce these rules has led to a sort of free-for-all where there's just not the sort of self-enforcement uh, that people would expect around these sorts of things based on the perceived you know, harms that might come from not following these. Um, in some countries where there were very strong social norms around, say, you know, people shouldn't have to keep a long distance from each other, there's actually been a backlash against proposed laws and you know, legal fines that you keep a distance from each other as well. So mm. I'm interested in the sort of transformations among types of norms as well. Right. So let me just pick up on the, 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 the mask wearing stuff. Um, so I guess that there are also, and again, this, this isn't part of, um, uh, this is, lies without outside of the, this lies outside of the scope of your, um, of your study, but, um, just to get your thoughts on it, I guess there are also these cases where, um, there, uh, especially with the moral and the social, there are overlaps in ways that um, might make um, uh, action um, ambiguous in that, uh, uh, you know, I don't know whether um, seeing uh, a, a group of people walking down the street without masks, I don't know whether I should call them out or not. Right. It doesn't, I mean, I see people engaging in unmasked and undistanced behavior in ways that aren't immediately putting me at risk, but it looks as if they're putting each other at risk. Um, that 
looks to me like, you know, part of me is driven to call them out and say, what are you guys doing? Like, you know, <laughs> put on a mask. And then I, I, there's also a part of me that thinks that that's um, unacceptable meddling. Does that seem right? Or it might be a, uh, you know, a risk that's not worth taking, right? So I, I think of that kind of case. And I think of you know, the work of people like Linda Radzik on social punishment. And, you know, one thing about social punishment, as opposed to sort of legal punishment carried out by institutions that sort of exist to do this, is it's a risky thing to do. It's risky. And it's risky in ways that are different based on your sort of position, right? Um, so as a, as a young woman walking down the street, I'm probably far less likely to call out a group of young men for their non-mask wearing or non-social distancing behavior you know, then as a man who's, you know, older and maybe more secure in my sort of physical ability to defend myself. But the point is that in case of social norms, there's no clear authority assigned for their enforcement. And so they sort of, they exist at two levels. One is just the expectation that other people expect you to act in a certain kind of way. So sort of self-enforcement. This is the way that Christina Bicchieri really models social norms. Um, the second way is on people taking it on themselves to enforce them. And the, and the odd thing about social norms, which I think has generated a lot of the interest in them in philosophy, is how they seem to be subject to a kind of bootstrapping possibility, where if enough people are convinced that there's a social norm around a particular activity within their particular group, then that can give rise to the beliefs and the commitments and attitudes that ground social norms uh, and thus create one. Right. And so I, there's a way of, you know, punishing people for behaviors that previously it would be questionable at best to say there was really a widely accepted social norm uh, that are not subject to the kind of review that legal norms are for sort of non-retroactive punishment. And so it looks like you can, as a sort of strong you know, norm leader, create a social norm in that way by, by calling out behavior or punishing others. Uh, Obviously not effective in these cases where uh, there's still deep division about wearing masks. That has not happened around the COVID-19, it would seem, <laughs> the societies we're talking about. Right. And we've even gotten, at least in the States, it seems to me that, um, you know, insofar as your account of norms is at least implicitly and in, in, in some facets explicitly connected to people's understanding of their social identities and their group membership. Um, you know, mask wearing and not mask wearing has become a very, very clear, at least in the parts of the, the country that uh, I'm familiar with, has become a very clear um, uh, manifestation of and also uh, an expression of um, one's conception of one's group identity. That's right. And I'll, I'll go further than that in connecting the sort of themes. So on sort of right wing social media over the summer, I was tracking the uses of discourse around the Holocaust and sort of um, perceived sort of compliance in the Nazi takeover of society as a reason to resist mandates around public health in the United States. And right. so not just people talking about that, but people using images to suggest, you know, if you wear a mask, then you're, you're effectively putting yourself on the train to be deported. What I think of as horrible comparisons, uh, but that is one way in which, uh, public behavior in times of mass atrocity uh, continues to be talked about as a sort of justification for political positions today, both on the left and in the right in the United States. Mm. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, let, we can keep going, but let's, let's sort of track the, the next step of the argument because, you know, with this conception, uh, you know, this, this sort of three-way distinction uh, of norms in place, you can start, uh, or you start developing the what I take to be the overriding thesis of the book, which, as you put it at one point, is the the claim that um, historical instances of mass atrocity typically reflect the presence rather than the absence of norms. So, first, I want to ask you, sir, can you unpack that thesis um, a little bit, um, and then I want to. Uh, Talk a little bit uh, in more detail in more detail about um, uh, the way that uh, you, you understand norms 
being present, but still being subject to various kinds of transformation. So let's start with this sort of the, the higher altitude. Like, can you tell us a little bit about why you think that um, uh, historical instances of mass atrocity would typically reflect the presence rather than the absence of norms? Yeah, great. So, so reflect is a, like a capacious verb. And I think that there could be a concern from some readers of the book that it sort of collapses into triviality to say that mass atrocities reflect the presence of norms. Uh, one way in the book that I try to counter this worry is to show that there are, or at least there have been, sort of extant, somewhat respected explanations of particular mass atrocities uh, that suggest otherwise. So accounts that say mass atrocities are you know, perpetrated by psychopaths who are completely unresponsive to sort of norm-guided uh, deliberations by sort of murderous robots, which is one of the psychological profiles given of the sort of Nazi hierarchy in the 60s, um, or that they're just sort of situations where chaos reigns. Um, I don't think that that's true. And one of the ways I try to show that is by using these sort of testimonial accounts by both perpetrators and victims or targets of atrocities, as well as bystanders, uh, to show that you know people, as far as we can tell, actually were conscious of significant norms even when they were violating other long-standing norms in their in their societies, um, so among perpetrators, one of the interesting things you see is um, sort of norm guidance. I make a distinction between norm guidance and norm following. Where norm following means you, know, you accept the norm and you abide by what the norm you know requires of you and others who accept it. Norm guidance. Uh, you could be norm-guided and accepting a norm, or you could be norm-guided without accepting the norm, but when you're guided by it, it's ambiguous whether you actually follow it. Uh, and so Alex Bellamy, who's a political scientist, he studied the uh, what he calls the norm of civilian immunity in war. And he suggests that this, uh, this norm, which he calls a moral norm, I'm not sure that he's right about that, has been widely uh, successful in international society um, because it's been linked to the, the legitimacy of governments. So he thinks that high-level potential perpetrators of atrocities who maybe want to you know, unify their society where there are divisions or get rid of a minority group, he thinks that they have come to be guided at least by this norm because they're concerned about being deemed illegitimate and maybe being subjected to humanitarian intervention or sanctions or regime change. Um, and he suggests even, even when they don't follow it, so they don't abide by that they still attack civilians, uh, they nevertheless try to hide it or they deny it after the fact. And so you can think of cases like the you know, the chemical weapon attacks, where a lot of the signs pointed to the Syrian government and during the Obama administration, but they strongly denied that they were responsible and said that no, it was the sort of rebels in that civil conflict that instead used it. You know, we can understand this as an attempt to not uh, be punished under that widely accepted norm, even though they weren't really following the norm if, if we do think that they committed that attack. This is different from thinking about lower level perpetrators who aren't sort of planning atrocities, aren't planning military campaigns. But one of the questions that people who study mass atrocities try to answer is, how does the individual person, sort of morally normal, they're not a psychopath, they're not a robot, how do they come to pick up a weapon and actually use it to kill or harm other people? Um, and John Hatzfeld, who interviewed a lot of perpetrators from the Rwandan genocide, people who had been tried and found guilty and so were in jail, um, he has an example where one of the perpetrators makes a distinction between looting the houses of Tutsis who'd been driven away or killed and actually killing them. And he says, um, it was okay for a male Hutu to send his wife to go loot the house of Tutsis. That was okay if he was you know, didn't have the heart for it that day or had some other concern, he could do that. But it wasn't legitimate, and that's the that's the perpetrator's word as reported by Hatzfeld, it wasn't legitimate to send the wife to go actually engage in the killing. And he interprets this in terms of sort of gender-based norms around the division of labor that persisted and continued to sort of guide and were even followed by perpetrators uh, who were nevertheless doing things that were totally uh, not permitted under the normal laws of their society. Uh, I can I can say more about how that affects the target or victim side as well, if you like. Yeah, please. Yeah, so it seems like targets of atrocities 
are also conscious of the persistence of certain kinds of norms that help them to make strategic decisions around their actions, around escape or hiding. Um, so Nakama Tech, who's a scholar who's studied um, rescuers and paid helpers during the Holocaust in Poland, particularly, um, she describes the great difficulty that sort of middle-class bourgeois Polish Jews had in male Jews had in hiding themselves in the guise of uh, Christian Polish peasants. And she says, well, it wasn't really necessarily familiarity with Christianity that was the problem. It was that there were these norms, social norms, I presume, around you know, swearing and drinking that were just completely different in that class of society than they were in, in the households where these people in hiding grew up. And that they, they really had to stretch themselves to try to be plausibly members of that group. Um, pulling back the lens of analysis a bit, you get historians like Peter Hayes and others who are trying to make sense of the large-scale outcomes for different groups, different demographic groups during mass atrocities. Um, and one thing that they argue is that at, at different points, different features of an individual's identity, uh, which we started this question with some time ago, uh, are the kinds of things that pick one out as particularly vulnerable or that can render one uh, relatively sheltered uh, from being attacked. And that uh, one way in which they do that is that those features of one's identity are bound up with certain kinds of norms around the kinds of expertise or skills that one acquires, the kinds of threat that one is deemed to pose to the dominant group in one's society. Uh, and so there's this deep connection between one's social identity, one's being picked out as a target or identified as the rightful sort of perpetrator category, and uh, sort of norms that pre-exist in these societies. Right, right. So, um, so now part of the the argument then has to explain how, in the presence of um, norms, and perhaps even in in some of the historical cases in the presence of norms that um had for a long time prior to atrocity governed people um fairly well <laughs> uh in that they were able to maintain a civil order um how norms um shift or are transformed or are um, recontoured in ways such that even in their presence, um, these atrocious acts are possible. Can you run us through um, your account of that sort of norm transformation as a way of sort of dis distinguishing your thesis from the claim that, you know, what happens is that, you know, people in society sort of um, are following a bunch of, you know, standard kinds of norms for maintaining a civil order, and then those norms go away, and that's how you get the atrocity. Yeah, that's a such a hard question because it, it goes to the heart of like what the explanatory task is and what the markers are that suggest it's you know succeeding or not. Uh, so you do sometimes read uh, cases that suggest um, there's just like a norm of genocide or a norm of perpetration that arises within a society that previously didn't have one, and that that's what does the explanatory work. And the worry about this, and I, I talk about this in light of some of the work of Christina Bicchieri, who's very experimentally focused, the worry is that that's a kind of circular explanation. Uh, people see widespread you know, murder, killing, um, presumably something that's not happening in the societies of the social scientists and historians who are trying to make sense of this, uh, but also was not previously happening in that society that they're studying. And then they say, well, there must have been a norm transformation that made this possible. And then that claim about a norm transformation then is supposed to do the explanatory work. So it's sort of a clearly circular kind of explanation. Um, what I try to do is build on the models that social scientists have given of the ideology of mass atrocities. So the, the stages through which they routinely, though not universally, pass from relatively minor cases of social division, marginalization, and persecution to the most graphic uh, sort of exterminatory violence. And what these models suggest is um, that norm transformations 
can help with each stage of that process. So changes in legal norms, for example, can put people into a marginalized and inferior category of society. And they can just create categories in general. Um, if it's a marginalized category, then it legitimates certain kinds of um, exploitation or persecution of individuals in that space. Um, it can also be expressive of a sense that those people are a threat. And that's often why discriminatory legal norms are passed. Um, once people are viewed as a threat, uh, then people's moral inhibitions about uh, participating in or benefiting from their persecution um, can be lowered, or they might be dehumanized to the point where they're no longer seen as the kinds of beings that deserve moral consideration. And, and usually those kinds of claims are found at the latter stage. And, and that latter stage is the same stage at which I was just saying, what is the moment at which an individual perpetrator picks up a weapon and decides to go after their neighbors or people they were previously on you know, fairly peaceful terms with? Um, so, so I see norm transformations as being relevant to different stages in that sort of process. Great. Um, so let's now, because the way that the argument of the book then proceeds is um, we take up moral norms, legal norms, social norms, and in each case, you have a chapter or two uh, devoted to the the claim that the norm, the kind of norm in question, explain can help explain, and the kind of norm in question can help um, avert, prevent, predict, um, constrain uh, um, episodes of uh, mass atrocity. So why don't we begin with moral norms? Um, what's the role of the concept, let's just say, of a moral norm? Uh, or of moral norms in the plural, uh, what's the role of that concept uh, in helping us to explain instances of mass atrocity? Great. So I, I want to say in the case of moral norms specifically, it was really finding claims about the role of moral norms within the existing literature. So the existing social science and the existing historiography they really started me down the road of this project because essentially what I would find would be historians or social scientists making claims of a certain kind, uh, using different, slightly different language, but the same kind of claim uh, that in societies that experience mass atrocity, there is an inversion in moral norms. Uh, the moral universe is turned upside down or turned topsy-turvy. Uh, so a sense that somehow morality has been completely inverted or you know, turned the reverse way around so that previously killing would have been morally prohibited, but now it's morally prescribed. Uh, and looting would have been morally prohibited, but now it's morally prescribed, prescribed in these societies. Um, these claims generally sort of lacked conceptual sophistication. They didn't really talk about, you know, what is a moral norm specifically and how does it differ from other kinds of norms. Uh, and it didn't, they didn't really give any specificity about the mechanics of inversion. So you know, how is it possible for something to go from being prescribed to prohibited but still be the same you know, thing? Uh, and they were also open to these charges of circularity for a reason that I think connects to what I think is one of the distinguishing features of moral norms. Again, except in very limited cases, which I discuss uh, in the book of, sort of professional morality, it's not like there are you know, public commissions or tribunals that generally make pronouncements about what the moral norms are within a society or when those norms have changed, right? So it's not surprising to find a lack of sort of specificity around what the moral norm was before or how exactly it changed because the, just the evidence base that these people are used to using is not there. But for all of that, I think that moral norms are quite important for explaining and preventing mass atrocities, um, and in ways that are familiar to these social scientists. So in some ways, the project is to resituate pathways and mechanisms that they already recognize within a normative framework that sort of stands up to scrutiny. So I talk about the difference between evading pre-existing moral norms and eroding pre-existing moral norms. Uh, to take that in reverse order, Raphael Lemkin, who's the person who came up with the term genocide, he really thought that um, authorities, officials who were bent on destroying populations uh, would try to demoralize them, by which he understood would try to make them neglect 
their duties, their moral duties to their fellow group members, society members, and also not take interest in the violations of those obligations from outside groups. So he thought that uh, by, by breaking down accepted moral norms, it made it possible to commit group destruction more easily. Um, I take that to be a different kind of dynamic uh, than the kind of dynamic that David Livingston Smith has described really eloquently around dehumanization. So the dynamic that says, well, if you want to get people to pick up a weapon and kill somebody who was previously living on you know, peaceful and maybe even friendly terms with them, one way to do it is to repeatedly describe that person as not a human being, i.e. not a person worth moral consideration. And in that case, if dehumanization works on the model that Smith puts out, uh, then you don't have to talk about the person no longer being committed to a moral norm that murder is wrong. You say instead, they no longer see that being over there as the kind of being to whom the moral norm you shall not kill applies. Um, so those are, those are two pathways that I think actually get a lot of the explanatory work around how people, individuals, come to commit, perpetrate mass atrocities without going the further step and saying there's been a complete inversion and so now they necessarily think that murder is good and what they ought to do in every case. Um, Great. So how, how does, and that sounds to me very plausible, by the way, as just, a, uh, just an account of... Um, you know, the, um, well, just as an account of human psychology, it seems to me. Um, but, um, can you now say a little bit about how seeing, um, mass atrocity as the product of not this utter moral inversion or, um, ero- you know, complete, uh, disappearance, but rather as this, you know, more subtle kind of recontouring, uh, uh, one's behavior with respect to a standing moral norm. How does that, I see how that helps explain things. How does it help or how does it provide resources for predicting or averting or preventing mass atrocity? Great. Yeah. So I, I make an argument that, um, you know, we're all in some ways responsible for trying to take steps to prevent mass atrocities for occurring in our society and elsewhere. Uh, but realistically, if we want to focus on how moral norms and the commitments and attitudes that stand behind them can do that, we should focus first, uh, as a sort of test case, on individuals who find themselves sort of on the front lines of these events or, or the front lines of possible cases of mass atrocities. So I, I focus in that chapter on uh, soldiers and on humanitarian aid workers and on the moral norms that uh, they accept or that it is argued, you know, often by philosophers that they should accept to govern their actions, right? Um, in the case of soldiers, I talk about uh, what I call a permissive moral norm that says uh, you don't have to really reflect on the justice of your side's cause in a war in order to participate in it uh, and have all of the rights and uh, the same kind of liability, no matter what side of the justice you're on. Uh, this is something that Michael Walzer says in Just and Unjust Wars. More recently, David Luban has reaffirmed this and says, well, it's just not, it's just not plausible that ordinary soldiers could you know, come to a clear moral vision of the justice of their cause. I say that that's not a just lack of norm, which you might think. There's just no norm whatsoever there for that person. I call it a permissive norm against deliberation because it grounds certain kinds of responses to the reactions that other people might give. So if I, the moral philosopher, come along and criticize that person, uh, he can say, no, I'm, I'm perfectly permitted to not reflect on the justice of the cause you know, for X, Y, and Z reasons. So it, it provides a shield against certain kinds of responses. Uh, but you know, there are people like Jeff McMahon and Helen Froh who think, no, actually, that traditional view uh, misconstrues the moral stakes of the situation and the moral status or position of the ordinary soldier. And so they argue that actually, no, ordinary soldiers do have to judge the justice of their cause and their liability is different whether they're on the just or unjust side of the war. Um, you know, one reason for focusing on this kind of case, besides these people being on the front lines, is, well, how do you how do you find evidence for the moral norms that people accept or that they might accept as a better way of preventing mass atrocities? And, and 
the answer is going to be a kind of discursive answer. So the answer is around the debates that people have around the norms that they ought to accept. Uh, but I will say that both in that case and in the case of humanitarian aid workers who often debate, you know, am I required to be neutral, not just in the military sense of not giving arms to either side of a war, but also in the sort of publicity sense of not making a declaration around which side I think is the just side of a war. Uh, I think it's ultimately up to the sort of social scientists to be able to tell us, okay, there was a debate around what the norm ought to be that these individuals ought to accept. You know, if people did change what they accepted as their moral position and the moral norms applicable to them, would that actually prevent mass atrocities? And, and that is not something that I think a philosopher giving an account of norms in mass atrocities can do. That is an empirical question. Right, right, right. Good. So, um, why don't we turn next then to, as you do, to legal norms? Uh, what what role both explanatory and um, constraining or um, uh, preventative uh, do does the idea, <laughs> let's put it this way, does the idea of um, these behaviors, these mass atrocity behaviors, sort of invoking legal norms, what role does that play in explaining and um, constraining, as you say, uh, uh, the, the acts themselves? Sure. Well, I, I think, as you know well, there's a sort of artifact of Anglo-American legal philosophy, jurisprudence in the 20th century, where after the Second World War, there's a debate called the Hart-Fuller debate, which is essentially, in some ways, a debate about whether um, the rule of law is compatible with sort of campaigns of extermination by a government against its own people. Uh, this was inspired by a sort of very short text that a, a Weimar-era German legal philosopher wrote immediately after the Second World War, or in the final months of the Second World War, where he said, essentially, there was the positive law of a nation that existed in its statutes and the pronouncements of justices, and then there was a higher law, uh, and the, the positive pronouncements were invalidated when the higher law was violated. Um, I try to sidestep that debate in many ways. Uh, I think it's an interesting debate, but it's not the one that engages at the level of social science and history that I want to do in this book. So what I argue is instead, whatever the question about legality is, um, there's actually plenty of ways, plenty of pathways by which societies undergoing mass atrocities and the planners of those events use legal norms to try to make those events uh, easier and also to escape responsibility for them. So I identify three major pathways which are related to what I earlier called sort of the etiology of mass atrocities. So one is the creation of social categories. So just identifying people by means of law as belonging to one category and other members of society belong to another. Um, there have been debates about how law necessarily has to create categories. So I'm not saying that any creation of categories in law is necessarily a sign that you know, genocide is around the corner. That would be preposterous. Um, but the next stage, the legalization of persecution, is very significant. And so you can look at laws like the Nuremberg Laws in Germany, the laws of the Jim Crow South in the United States, the laws of apartheid-era South Africa, and you can just see persecution being legitimated through law. Um, and I, I kind of mean legitimated in the sort of speech act theory uh, sense. Uh, um, Ray Langton has an excellent paper called um, Speech Acts and Unspeakable Acts, where she talks about how you know just, just making something legal in a society, that can legitimate acts of persecution. It just is legitimated when the speech act of the pronouncement of a law occurs. Um, but they also make it legitimate in that, in that more Alex Bellamy sort of sense where you can avoid criticism for it or you can escape sort of legal penalties for it when it's legal to um, exploit or take over the property of a person who was previously your competitor in business, for example, or when you can deny services to someone on the basis of their race or ethnicity or gender, right? Um, the final and interesting case, and I think, as I argue, kind of self-contradictory case, is denying after the fact that atrocities have occurred. So many societies uh, where the ruling power uh, during a mass atrocity then continues in power afterwards 
um, will try to make it illegal to talk about the atrocity. So probably the most famous case of this today uh, is the denial of the Armenian genocide by different successive sort of governments in Turkey, right? So immediately after the genocide, there was a brief moment where it was possible to talk about what had happened to the Armenians that was quickly foreclosed in the 20s. And so continues at various points to be made illegal to talk about, to print articles about this. Uh, But what I argue in the chapter is actually law, more than these other kinds of norms, generates an enormous amount of paperwork. And in a way, we're back to Robert Jackson's opening statement at Nuremberg. Um, The generation of paperwork by perpetrators trying to make their actions legally possible and legitimate ends up backfiring because it provides the singular source of evidence to be used against them, which everybody recognizes as sort of appropriate evidence because it has all of the polish and sophistication and authority of law. Right, right. Um, so we'll, we'll, let's um, we'll, let's move quickly. We want to make sure that we, 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 we get the full picture uh, before um, we hit an hour. Um, so how about social norms? So social norms, I think, are the, in some ways the most interesting category for this project because they're the least used explicitly by social scientists and historians working on these issues. And on the other hand, philosophers who talk about social norms in recent, in the last decade, have really been interested in the way social norms can help to create social stability. And I'm kind of, it's not a completely opposite argument because I think there are patterns of stability during mass atrocities, but certainly these kinds of mass atrocities are not what philosophers who study social norms generally are thinking about. Uh, So on the explanatory side, moving quickly, I talk about how pre-existing gender-based social norms can do a lot of explanatory work. And this is something that has been recognized by historians of mass atrocities from the Holocaust uh, to the killing fields in Cambodia to the Rwandan genocide. They have recognized patterns where pre-existing gender-based divisions of labor or social norms that say a man who's not a relative can't go into someone's house uh, without their male head of household there have been exploited both by perpetrators and by people who are trying to act as rescuers or people who are just trying to survive mass atrocities. Uh, The explanatory, uh, I'm sorry, the preventive side, I do two things there. First, there has been a real effort by the kinds of institutions I was talking about at the very beginning of our discussion, Holocaust museums and other educational programs around genocide and mass atrocity to cultivate new social norms particularly for young people. So they'll say things like be an upstander rather than a bystander. You know, when you think about, when you see injustice, think about what you saw. Um, and I argue that, you know, the individual model of an individual rescuer, while really important, is not really enough to prevent mass atrocities because, well, for one thing, rescuers are only rescuers because a mass atrocity is actually happening. Uh, so I, I say instead, two other things are significant. One, the erosion of certain kinds of bad social norms that might make it harder to know how atrocities happen. And I talk about social norms uh, prescribing silence for the victims, maybe because what has happened has been, they think, shameful, or maybe because they think people just will be uncomfortable if they talk about it. This, I think, has largely occurred, though there are cases, of especially sort of gender-based violence that happens during mass atrocities, where there continue to be strong social norms for both the largely women who suffer these kinds of harms and their male relatives to talk about it afterwards. So I think that's a bad thing. I think that is a social norm that you know, there's some reason to try to erode. On the, on the other side, creating new social norms, I very briefly talk about challenges to legally prohibiting incitement to atrocities. Uh, there's been excellent work done on this in recent years by Richard Ashby Wilson and Greg Gordon, but they recognize, especially in the constitutional context of the US where freedom of expression is so important, it's hard to identify and hard to justify uh, penalties for speech acts of even incitement. So I suggest, well, maybe we should focus our attention on social norms against incitement instead of legal norms against incitement, where there's not such a concern about official institutions regulating speech. Hmm, Very interesting. Can can I ask you just to say a little bit more on sort of where the book ends. And remember, we started the conversation, there's this methodological point about the sort of richness of unofficial testimony. Um, but the book ends on a, a, a kind of um, 
expansion of that point that you were just touching on about the importance of um, institutions and other kinds of sites and practices of memorializing um, and not memorializing in a, uh, I mean, memorializing in the sense of sort of confronting uh, uh, rather than sort of fictionalizing the past. Um, can, you, can you expand a little bit on that, or like the role of, Hol- of the Holocaust Museum, for example? Yeah, and I think, you know, we've just lived through four years where I've, I've seen personal friends from the Holocaust Museum in D.C. and other official sort of institutions like this really wrestle with themselves about, you know, how prominently can I make comparisons to the erosion of norms, the, the transformation of norms in U.S. society today, and what I'm an expert in, which is the conditions of German society or other societies that have undergone mass atrocities in some previous period. Um, what has been argued, I think, pretty convincingly uh, by people who study museums specifically, is that museums require so much funding for what they do that they really have a kind of conservative bent. It's really hard for museums as institutions in our society, as opposed to the individuals who work at them, to come out categorically against some prominent faction or prominent entity within their society, uh, because they really require a lot of consensus around fundraising and um, you know, promotion of their exhibits. So I was just listening recently to an event where there was a representative of the um, Sydney Holocaust Museum you know, in Australia. Mm-hmm. She said two fascinating things. First, she said, the first generation of Holocaust survivors who came to Australia after the war and created this museum in the first place were not really connected to Australian society through their upbringing. So they weren't really cognizant of the experience of Aboriginal people in Australia. And so there were opportunities for making connections between the experience of imperialism and child removal, these sort of actions and the events of the Holocaust, but that first generation didn't make them. So she said she herself was a member of the second generation. And she said, you know, they've now created a Holocaust and human rights ending exhibit for that museum. But she said, we constantly get criticism for what we have included, and we criticize ourselves for what we haven't included in that ending exhibit. Uh, Mm. Because to make a strong political statement about how the Holocaust or other mass atrocities are relevant to politics today, uh, is inevitably going to alienate powerful political factions within whether U.S. society or Australian society, um, even perhaps German society or Dutch society today. Um, so I don't know what the answer is because that, that explanation suggests it's a sort of structural feature of museums that prevents them from you know, doing more public engagement about um, you know, prevention. Um, and that, that's really research I'm interested in for my future work. Oh, good. Well, let me, I mean, you've been so generous with your time, um, but let me, you know, give you the opportunity to, um, uh, to tell us uh, um, before we, uh, before we break. Um, so w- tell us more about your next project. So I'm, I'm now about a third of the way, a little more than a third of the way into a book project uh, called Seeing Atrocities. The Ethics and Epistemology of Viewing Intolerable Harms. And that project is not really focused at um, sort of social scientific explanatory accounts. That project is more focused at, you know, what ordinary people like you and me who happen to encounter an image of an atrocity you know, on social media or traditional media, and also what museums, courtrooms, and uh, sort of journalists ought to do with the visual evidence, as opposed to the documentary Uh, textual or the testimonial uh, oral evidence about mass atrocity. This is an issue that has received a lot of attention uh, prior to the rise of digital and social media, but has just exploded in interest lately. Um, So Facebook was strongly criticized a few years back for uh, censoring a picture of Kim Phuc, the so-called napalm girl from the Vietnam War uh, that was removed from the person who posted it, and they were sort of sanctioned. And then people came out against this and said, well, we have to show the reality of American practice in the Vietnam War. We're going to educate people about it. Um, the Holocaust Museum in D.C. and other Holocaust museums have been criticized in the past as being sort of places where people go to get an illicit sort of thrill from seeing really horrific things. 
And they push back on that and say, no, these were real things that happened. And we need to give people the evidence that is convincing and visual evidence is more convincing. So in the book, as, as I see it now, I'm really defending two basic claims. One is an old claim, as I just suggested, which says uh, visual encounters with atrocity can convey things about them that can't reliably be conveyed by words alone. So we get something from a visual encounter we don't get from a textual or an oral encounter with atrocity. And the interesting part about what I call the new claim is it says, maybe for those same reasons, it's really difficult to establish or to express norms that should govern our practices of viewing, our practices of sharing, whether professionally or on social media, and our practicing of exhibiting in museums or in courtrooms, images of atrocity. And so the, yeah, the museum question you asked shortly before, that, that's really at the center of this project, uh, you know, as well as some other questions um, that are really relevant, I think, for everybody's life, not just historians and social scientists trying to make sense of these events. Yeah, and is uh, one quick question: Is part of the concern about this sort of um, uh, the visual record of uh, atrocity? I guess part of the concern would be something like um, uh, desensitization or uh, normalization that in um, in displaying these these horrific images, um, the the reason why they shock. Um, might um, uh, might be uh, also the reason why the, the more present they are in our sort of visual environment, um, uh, that they might lose the ability to shock. Is is that part of the concern? So that's in that's in the space that I'm addressing. Uh, though I don't I don't tend to agree with this sort of um, compassion fatigue is the the term commonly right. given for this. Uh, I don't, I don't tend to agree with compassion fatigue as a sort of you know, reason not to display, let's say, or a reason not to share images of atrocity. But it, it's the kind of normative statement in the space that I think is, it's hard to understand what exactly the norm is supposed to be and the justification for it. And that, I think, is tied to the difficulty of expressing in words what it is that images do that words can't, right? So that that's at the core of the project. But the flip side of what you described, um, is that it continues to harm the people who have been harmed in the past, who are depicted in atrocity photos. So there has also been an argument that says we should uh, choose not to look. We should maybe, um, like, repatriating remains is sometimes done. We should also repatriate images uh, because many images of atrocity were created by the perpetrators of those atrocities or people who were close to them. And the argument goes, either they continue to harm the person who suffered the atrocity, or maybe they necessarily put us in the role of the perpetrator or someone sensitive to it when we view them. So that's another kind of interesting statement about what the norm should be and why around seeing or sharing these images that I really think requires closer analysis. And that's what's making the project really interesting at the moment. Well, that sounds fant- yeah, fantastic and fascinating. Um and I look forward to uh, to reading uh, more about that as you make progress. Um, but for now, Paul, um, I just want to thank you for joining me today on New Books in Philosophy. Thank you. It's really been a pleasure. Um, and I want to also thank our listeners uh, for joining us for our discussion. Uh, I remind our listeners that we were talking about Paul Morrow's new book published with MIT Press. It's titled Unconscionable Crimes. How Norms Explain and Constrain Mass Atrocities. Thanks for listening to New Books in Philosophy, and bye for now.